Good evening. You are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. Uh, joining me tonight is Troy Goodfellow. Troy, welcome back to the show. So when did this stop being the official podcast of FlashofSteel.com? Instantly. Instantly. Yeah, I kind of missed that. Well. That's too bad, isn't it? It was a repeat of the problem of why you can't host it anymore, you know? It is. It is. Absolutely. I just miss, I just miss hearing that. I miss saying it. I, I always sort of have to stop myself from saying that, so I mean, it's it's definitely part of the tagline. It feels a little unnatural not to say it, but there we go. Yeah, you need to have something, though. I'm Rob Zachney, and this is Three Moves Ahead. You just say what Three Moves Ahead is, like the number one strategy podcast on the internet, or... I kind of feel like, though, if you've wandered into this podcast, you you know what's up. Yeah, that's true. They don't know us by now. Well, you know, you get new listeners all the time. That's true, but they usually know what they're being pointed to. Usually. That's true. No, that's no secret. We are. We have the most. We have the nerdiest logo on iTunes. But I am very thrilled uh, to be back, and uh, I'm sorry I missed so many of the great shows you've had the last month. It's been a really chaotic month for me, but you guys have been uh, really doing some amazing, amazing stuff. Yeah, it, it's been a fun month, and um, you know, I think I think we managed to put put together some great shows, and uh, naturally, that had to come to a screeching halt. Well, it does, you know, not for lack of planning or lack of effort. Uh, no, I mean, this this was a week where just everything that could go wrong did go wrong, and uh, so we find ourselves here, you, me, the listeners, and we're just going to sort of be discussing uh, what's been interesting us this week, um, kind of a what you've been playing show, and, you know, what have you been pursuing? So, I mean, you know, why don't you start us off? What What, what have you been playing this week? What have I been playing? I've been playing, uh, honestly, very little uh, new stuff, uh, largely because I get I do my work through the evenings, so I'm through through the day, and I have to fill in with errands. I've to listeners, I've recently relocated to Toronto, uh, which necessitated a, quite a big move. So a lot of my days and nights are filled with you know reestablishing uh, my Canadian life and getting things organized here. So on the game side, I mean, I've played some Dawn of War Retribution. Uh, which I like quite a bit, because uh, I like Dawn of War 2, uh, but really not enough to talk intelligently about it, uh, Not certainly not as well as Tom Chick or Bill Abner or anybody's put more than a few hours into it could, but I like what I see, except for the campaign, uh, which, you know, follows all the problems of the other Dawn of War 2 campaigns. Uh, some Shogun 2, which I blogged about quite recently, and we're going to talk about that next week, I think. Um, next week, unless we decide to go back to retribution, um, right? We'll we'll figure out which makes the most sense for we'll the people out. I'm thinking about inviting. Right, uh, Shogun is you know is the surprise for me so far this year, and how good it actually is. How it um, has all the creative assembly glories, uh, but the AI finally works. Now, I've always been a defender and apologist for them. Though I was not looking forward to this game at all because I was kind of tired of the formula. Um, but I'm quite pleased uh, with what I'm seeing so far. Uh, but mostly on the strategy side, I mean, playing some RPGs, but on the strategy side, mostly stuff I can do really quickly. So uh, some Field of Glory, um, you know, some colonization uh, being sped up, the civilization colonization, right, which right. if you speed it up is a pretty, pretty fast, short game. Generally, you know if you're going to win pretty quickly or not, and you can stop or you can keep going. But a lot of Field of Glory, which uh, is one of my favorite, favorite war games of uh, the recent past. Uh, they just released a new expansion last month, I think, um, taking the armies into the Roman Imperial Age. 
So there's all kinds of new armies to play with. If you like making your custom armies, I kind of just like looking at them, uh, looking at all the different combinations I could have. Well, there still aren't enough battles. But I really, really love that game, and the more I play it, the more I love it. Now, you know, I could, I could be at the risk of repeating three moves ahead here. Um, you know, I think Field of Glory is one of those games that tends to come up a lot, but I'm not sure we've ever actually gotten into the nitty-gritty of what it is and why it's so good. Right. Uh, do, did you play it, Rob? You know, I, I don't. Um, you know, when I hear Field of Glory, I immediately think of the old Microprose Napoleonics game. Um, so, Fields of Glory. Exactly. It always, it always throws me. Uh, so, so what kind of system is it using? It is based on the Field of Glory tabletop system, which is uh, sort of a modified uh, DBM, if you're familiar with tabletop um, Ancients Warfare, the De Bellis Multitudinous or whatever, but it's just called DBM. Uh, dice, very simple types of units, uh, swords, spears, light cavalry, heavy cavalry. Um, it plays very quickly. Uh, it's not nearly as uh, complicated or fidgety as DBM. Uh, I like how intuitive the system is itself. And the computer translation of it is has been getting better and better and better with every patch. Uh, it was great when it came out, but now the information is clearer, the lines are clearer, uh, it's easier to see where your troops are spending their movements, and what the impacts of movements will be, uh, the vic chance of victory uh, icons are very clear. Um, it is, I think, such a great translation of the board game rules, if, sorry, tabletop rules, if you're familiar with the tabletop rules. But even if you're not, if you're just like me, uh, an Ancients Warfare nerd, um, Field of Glory is really where it's at. It is so, it is lively, it is fast. Uh, it's not particularly pretty. I think they could have made the models a lot more attractive. They tried to go for the let's make these look like miniatures look. Right. And, but it's just okay, but they're kind of really low-res miniatures look down from a, on high. So, like, and no one looks at their miniatures, you know, down on top of their heads. So you kind of lose uh, some of the glories of the painting and all of that. I think they could have done a little bit more uh, to make it more attractive, at least make the units more attractive. But uh, the system is great. It's excellent in multiplayer. It plays... Uh, I've had many, many multiplayer matches, which is more than I can say for most war games. Or often I'll some PBM, uh, but never really play a lot of them because the game is so fast. You can really churn out a ton of uh, multiplayer sessions, and there are, I think now, I think sixty battles. Oh, it sounds like a lot, but it really, really isn't. Um, there's so many great ancient battles that haven't been done. And the community's pitched in to do some scenarios there, which you can download. And they're, of course, of varying quality. You always have the people who want to make, you know, the Battle of Kenai, but with every soldier instead of, you know, trying to scale it down. Right. Make it that, was, that was a big problem with uh, the operational art of war, too, is people would right. try to paint their masterpiece. And, right. dear God, we do not need to simulate... Um, you know, the invasion of France in 1914 at the company level. What is yes. wrong with you people? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so you see some of that uh, on the scenario form. But many uh, user scenarios have become official scenarios. And that is the strategy game that I keep coming back to. That's my strategy comfort game. Now, this dungeon crawl is my comfort game in general. That is my strategy comfort game, though. The one I go to to relax uh, before I go to sleep at night. Now, this is a Slytherin game, right? It is developed by Slytherin, and it is Slytherin's probably their, the best game they've ever made. 
Um, and they were also involved in the development of the board game rules because the McNeil brothers who run Slytherin are old DBM champions. I mean, they're world champions at DBM or at once in 2000, 2001 or something. Right. I mean, they know how to do tabletop games uh, better than they can do, you know, educational games or even some turn-based stuff like in their Legion and Spartan games, which had a certain charm, really weren't great. This is a first-class war game. And I think it goes, it's, if you ask my favorite war game in the last five years, you know, it's going to be either Field of Glory or War in the East. Um, and, and also, um, what is it? The Pacific War game we talked about in the podcast. When a very oh god, your early episode. Yeah. Um, wasn't it just War in the Pacific? Was it War in the Pacific? No, it wasn't War in the Pacific. But it was something about in the Pacific. Yes. But our readers will fill me in. Uh, from Shrapnel, uh, done by Shrapnel. Yeah, I'm going to Flash of Steel right now. I'm going to race you to this piece of information. War Plan Pacific. War Plan Pacific. That's right. War Plan Pacific, which is the by uh, John Hawkins from KE Studios. Yes. Which is also up there. Uh, it's from my one of my favorite war games in the last few years. So yeah, if, if you don't play Field of Glory, uh, Rob, you really should. I think it's something we could actually do some quick multiplayer games and do some quick write-ups. Um, and I think it's something you would really enjoy because I know one of your problems with War in the East was just how big it was. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's you know, it, it's one of those things that actually really. I feel a little self-conscious about leveling that criticism because it's a really personal one, right? It's like, well, how do these games fit into my life? And this is something I kind of find myself running up against in a lot of in a lot of war games. Is this is what we should probably be talking about? And this is about that topic of the show: is how we fit strategy games in our lives. Yeah, I mean, that, well, I mean, that's kind of why we're doing this improv show, right? I mean, right. you know, it's it's hard to put these things together, and you know, when when you get a lot of responsibilities and you're, you're pulling a lot of different directions, you start to really prize that sort of quick hit. Um, that the quick hit war game experience, that quick hit strategy game where you can be right. in and out and have a complete satisfying experience in under you know, you know, in under two hours. Yeah, um, I mean, in under two weeks, under twelve or two months, if I'm to play by, play by email of War in the East. Uh, it's, I mean, this is really this is why real time strategy games became so big. I mean, uh, a lot of people, you know, from my generation who started with the turn based games. Um, many of us, you know, resisted the RTS because we had the whole, you know, it's just a click fest mentality and why would you want to play something that's so fast and what's the point um, if you can't sit down and plan things out? This is what the whole turn-based strategy thing was. Um, but the, this is another reason why the Dawn of War 2 campaign is terrible. That the, the missions take an hour, but you can play a skirmish in like 20 minutes. Um, people are really... Uh, like the the quick hit and the quick hit's important it's a valid approach to strategy games and it took me a while to get over my turn-based you know raised in the 80s and finding strategy gaming in the late 80s early 90s um just when you know turn base is really you know master of orion and you have civilization you have uh, really the only pop really rts game we played a lot of was populous not before rts really was its own little genre it's the RTS is a, is a time thing, and this is the one reason we had talked about in the show is I didn't have a lot of time this week. Now you, this is your job. Why didn't you have time? I did have time. Yeah. Oh, it's just me. It's my fault. Yeah, pretty much. Okay. It, well, it's, it's your fault and, and Tom's fault. We can't leave Tom out of this. He's yes. not here, so we can badmouth him. He loves it when we do that. 
Yeah, I'm sure he does. You'll be getting a nasty letter from Tom Chick about bad mouthing you. No, it, 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 it's hard uh, to find time to play games. I mean, Tom plays everything. Yeah. So, yeah, finding strategy, strategy in my life is why Field of Glory, probably one reason why I love Field of Glory so much. I mean, the content is one of it, is one thing, and the quality of the game is not. So, so, one thing I wanted to you know, ask you about, though, is I know you've, you and I have talked about, um, in some unflattering terms, about some of uh, Slytherin's, uh, you know, some of their collaborations with Matrix. Um, specifically, uh, when, when Slytherin is dealt with like World War II games. Oh, um, yeah. what was it? Uh, the Commander series. Yeah, the Commander series. Yeah, that was a poorly done game. I mean, there was just no getting around that. The com- I haven't played the most recent Commander game. Right. Uh, but no, the first the Commander one was it had uh, a lot of problems with it. Did some good things in it. I think Slytherin only published that. Though. I don't think they developed it. Oh, okay. The Matrix published it over here, and then. Matrix and Slytherin got, got married. Yeah, so that's one of the things I have a hard time sussing out is whether Slytherin, you know, what is what is Slytherin? Yeah, because uh, it's one of those it's one of those names that seems to pop up everywhere on like the Matrix site, but I don't know actually, you know, what have they made? Yeah, well, they made a bunch of uh, in the nineties. They made a bunch of ancient themed RTS slash turn based games, games that had had like Rome Total War, but with uh, a fire and forget battle setup system. Right. So they, that's the most famous for. They also have done some semi-educational games um, with the History Channel. Right. Um, those are their big dev things. And But they've also been doing some publishing. But now they and Matrix are married. Okay. So what does... Uh, so Field of Glory is all Ancients, right? Ancients and Medieval. Okay. There's one Medieval pack released, and there are th- at least three more Medieval packs to come. So this, yeah. is, this, is a, this is a type of warfare that you know pretty well. What does what does Field of Glory get right about it? What does how does Field of Glory communicate the nature of, um, you know, spear and arrow warfare? About as well as any tabletop system really could. It doesn't really feel like I because it's all turn based. You know, it's not like you have the whole right pull. Uh, what it gets right, I think, I mean, once again, it gets the it gets the idea of morale right. That the important thing is driving the enemy troops away. Um, that morale cascades, the same as you get in the Total War games. You know, if one unit near you is routing, other units have to do a check and see if they route as well, or if they right. lose uh, cohesion. Um, what I really like is I like its anarchy system, that units may ignore orders you give them if they think the order is a stupid order, or they may charge forward uh, because they're impetuous units. Like, it's a legion, and it sees some archers in front of it, and it's aching to get into battle. It'll charge the archers. You know, the archers will just evade anyway, because they're lighter units. Uh, Gauls are especially hard to control. Oh, that's so, excellent. So I like, I like, now, it doesn't happen a lot. It happens enough to, you know, occasionally screw up your plan. Like, you have this nice little legionary line, and you're moving forward, ready to kick some ass. And then a couple of boneheads in the front just charge forward. like, dude, no, you can't do that, because I can't back you up now. And he ends up exposing the side or putting a hole in the line. Um, and, of course, you know, the closer it is to the general, the less chance of that happening. Um, leaders can get killed, uh, which is, of course, always a lot of fun to, you know, surround Caesar and just pelt him with arrows until he's right. dead. Um, that's not always easy, though. I did play the Battle of Pharsalus last night as the Pompeians, and I killed two of Caesar's four leaders, I killed Sulla and Calvinus, but Antony and Caesar escaped. Which was as, cool. as they want to do. 
as they are wont to do. I, I did end up isolating Caesar, though, surrounding him and chasing him to the far side of the battle where he couldn't do any damage. Still a close-run thing. Uh, it gets the importance of training. Uh, there are different levels of different levels of uh, of training and experience. So I mean, I don't want to spend all the time all the time talking about stuff that people are very bored by. But I'm going to say, Field of Glory gets enough right for it. It feels right. It looks right. Uh, is it anything like Ancient Warfare really was? No, because it's still like a lot of control, uh, a lot more control than any ancient general really would have had. But um, it is. It's something special. I wanted to have a random battle generator. Is it too much else for a random battle generator these days? You know, I never, you know, I never really cared for random battle generators. No, really? Why not? Because I never found the battles that were generated particularly memorable. Um, I never played around with it too much. But I mean, I, I'm thinking. Ba- I go back to um, Steel, Steel Panthers, for instance. Okay, Steel Panthers. Right, and I, I don't know, like. I, the like the the scenarios never really seemed to hang together for me. I had no, they, they they didn't hold my interest. Maybe it was just maybe it was just the difference between knowing that it was a scenario that was designed to work a certain way, as mm-hmm. opposed to something that the computer spit out. But it, it just didn't it just didn't it didn't interest me as much. Yeah, see, I loved random battle generators and Age of Rifles. I think stands out for me, um, probably before your time. Yeah, a game I've always heard of, but. Yeah, it actually wasn't a great game, but it's a random battle generator with a lot of fun. So I want to have, you know, the the Russian army from the Crimean War to fight against the Confederates. And you choose a battlefield and set things up and say, I want to spend this many points. Uh, and it would generate a battle. And it would sometimes look very interesting. You would get, you know, different matchups of rifles and different matchups of artillery. And you could have some really interesting fun doing it. And I think, you know, uh, I think that it'd be good to have that sort of thing in the Field of Glory, where you have, I want to play a battle with the Romans and the Judeans. Right. And not one's made. Um, so you have to create your own scenario, your own battle. It would be nice to say, I want to do this. Uh, and here's a battlefield. Have fun. But, you know, they didn't have that, and there are probably good reasons for it related to the way the a uh, digital army generator works, but I can dream. So that's what I've been doing. Uh, I've been learning my new job, loving it. I love my boss. I love my job. Uh, getting all settled here in Toronto and not playing enough games. Now, Rob, you've been, of course, doing a good job in the podcast. I've been following you the email chains and seeing you all this planning and organizing and working hard to do it right. Um, you know, of course, things eventually fall apart sometimes. Um, but you've been doing a lot of writing for PC Gamer. Yeah. How's that working out? Oh, I mean, it's it's an absolute blast. They, they keep you busy. Um, I, I'm sure you're aware of this. Sometimes being the designated strategy guy is a very mixed blessing. Yes. Because, you know, suddenly they'll be like, hey, you, do you want to review this game? And the answer is no. No, you don't want to review that game. <laughs> you don't want to be you don't want to be within 20 miles of that game. Um but if you don't do it, who is? So, you know, you're kind of obligated to take the good with the bad. And, you know, this is a genre where there's there's a, a fair bit of bad. In, you know, the exciting thing is, um, you know, occasionally, like, Dan Stapleton will ask, like, well, what's coming up that really interests you? And mm-hmm. one of the things I hope to do more is sort of chase down strategy games that wouldn't otherwise receive coverage and maybe try to find ones that are actually worth talking about. Yeah, and that was always a really big challenge. Um, 
for begging like PC gamer. That's you know you have to be looking out there. It was easier when I was, you know, more when there was, it was, it was almost easier when I was with CGM and you know I was like, well, this is a tiny little war game over here. But now you know people know about that sort of stuff. It's these companies get their word out um, a lot easier than they used to. One thing I mean, one thing I kind of wanted to ask you is, do you feel that there's a lot of value in the try to review as much as possible approach? Because you know, one of my regrets is like, you know, when I when I'm reviewing a game that we all suspect, and we're not naming names here, but th- there are games where we all suspect this is probably not going to be a good RTS, and it's not even a major game. Mm-hmm. But you know, you, you you take the bullet, you start reviewing it, and it you know doesn't take long to realize there's really nothing here. It's just a mediocre or bad game, and those can be fun to bash. They can be interesting to talk about because a bad design is in many ways more illuminating and what makes a good design work than a good design. But at the same time, that that is space and time being taken away from finding something that is maybe something you'd be excited to tell readers about. Yeah, it's kind of hard because, you know, you want to... You want to be able to you want to guide readers. You want them to know when there's crap out there too. Um, Very true. And it's important that that people are be told, hey, this crap, this developer's crap. They're trying to and to at least to try to. And when you do that, I mean, I'm not one of the people who like to write funny bashing reviews. I really wasn't that kind of writer. I didn't, you know, take my time coming up with clever ways to say something sucked. I generally say, okay, this game fails, and here's why it fails, and get into, you know, its use of cliches, its use of design problems, its pathing issues, and talk about, you know, as a failed design, or in some cases, just a bad idea to begin with. I've read a couple of reviews in my early days saying, this was just a stupid idea to begin with, and here's why. Um, but yeah, I mean, there is the tension, especially in print, where you don't have room for everything, and you might want to have, you know, Another 250 words on a Euro RTS from Croatia about, you know, panzers in the Balkans or, you know, a really clever uh, board game adaptation coming out of Switzerland on your computer. And where do you take the where do you spend those 250 words Um, on the game that's probably going to sell more or on the game that's actually kind of doing some interesting stuff? And that's often the choice for the editors. (laughs) And it's up to us, I think, to sell that sort of thing. This is something that we're, we're running against, and that yeah, I know that I've seen on this side of on the other side of the industry, not in journalism, is just one of the big problems with strategy games is how few people do them seriously. Like, if we want to find a review list for a certain game, you know, who are we going to talk to? Um, so that's and you know, and they only have so much time uh, to devote to certain games. So it, it's tough. Right, and 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 you also have that preaching to the choir slash echo chamber effect to deal right. with where there are certain there are certain niche developers or you know niche series that they have their audience and you and I might swear up and down that these are bad games these are these are not really worth your time you should stay away from them they don't work yeah but they're they're fulfilling some need for the people who play them and there's absolutely nothing you can say that will you know change their mind and they really aren't interested in they really aren't interested in hearing it. At the same time, everyone else has already sort of made up their mind that this is something to stay away from. Yeah, but that's not exactly unique to strategy games. I mean, you look at you know the whole AAA development cycle and how people are drawn to certain franchises. And no matter how much you can say, you know what, this latest version isn't any better than the other one. And in fact, all games are like this now. I don't know why you're spending your time on this. And they'll still sell 
you know, three million, four million copies. Well, um, and maybe that points up some of the phoniness of you know the the AAA divide as opposed to the rest of the game industry, where there's this this attitude that oh, it's Call of Duty, it's going to sell no matter what. I yeah, think, but that happens in niche genres all the time too. Yeah, that people oh, they sell it smaller. They sell it smaller numbers. Right, but the, but fundamentally the model is the same, right? Yeah. Where I, this is a predictable, this is going to produce predictable results. Yeah, this is there, there, and this is a big problem uh, in the wargaming community. I think. Um, I mean, my last column, I think, ruffled some feathers. Where I, I mean, it took kind of a devil's advocate position and made the case, you know, about wargame pricing and how it's, you know, not helping uh, wargames. Yeah, that was that was a great column. I've, uh, you know, I mean, you know, I've made the same argument as well. Like, this is something I think that both bothers us a lot. Yeah, I mean, it's. Uh, I mean, I'm, Mike Jackson's doing it for. Very, I called out Matrix, but also other companies. Uh, Matrix was, of course, the big one because they are the number one war game publisher and did produce a very expensive but very, very good uh, war in the East. But, you know, it's, it is, uh, but they are, they, they have a captive audience. Um, then I, the, growing the audience really isn't, is it something, they're not, they're something that they think they'll do on their own, that people will raise new war gamers. It's going to be enough of a trickle of new war gamers to keep the model viable. Um, but they can produce, they can publish or republish old games, old series, and no people are going to buy them. And it, yeah, it isn't that much a different model than you see at the AAA development. I mean, it's, I really don't care about, you know, Call of Duty. I'm sure they're all wonderful, wonderful games uh, that many people like and they buy for their quality. I have certainly not calling them out for being poor games because I haven't played them. But that's something I'm interested in, so I'm not going to write about that. Um, but it's the model is the industry's. I think the game industry is in some. No, I'm not going to go into my whole diagnosis of the industry. Not with my job right now. I will say that there are. That if there there are going to be some problems, I think when gamers catch on to it, when they catch on to the game, they catch on to uh, the way the business is built. Um, but in general. Um, yeah, I, I think you're right that there is this problem with you know franchises and the strategy game community. Oh, I mean, the Creative Assembly, you could argue, is doing this. Oh, I, I think you you can definitely make that case. And you know, I don't know. I, I haven't I haven't completely I have not made up my mind about Shogun. But when I was getting into it, I definitely had this feeling that I've been playing this game for eleven years. You know? Yep, yeah, I can see that. And it took it took a long time for that for me to get over that feeling because and, and to some extent it hasn't completely faded because yeah, that's always a bad thing right I mean sometimes a formula works I mean you can debate whether the formula works we had this debate on the show you know whether the creative assembly formula worked to begin with or it was even a good idea but you know, if a formula works and it does provide something I mean how much newness do you have to give that's true I I think where creative assembly has tended to get into trouble is how how comparatively little progress they've made in sorting out parts of that design. Yeah. You know, I think I think that's the problem is that the the, the progression in things like the graphics, the scope has been so impressive, but in, to see the same flaws come up year after year after year, it, it, it's very frustrating. And I think there there is a point, I think it, you know, reaches crescendo around Empire that mm-hmm. people were simply done. Yeah, I mean, something about Empire, which I still thought was better than people give it credit for, but I could understand why people who were just wanted 
without this was a total ripoff. You could you could see people's coming who liked the game felt that it was a ripoff, uh, that it was incomplete, ill thought, ill planned, uh, didn't have a good structure, didn't have good AI. Um, but I still liked it for some reason, and I'll still defend that review. I think it was over enthusiastic, but I'll still defend the core of the review. Um, but I, I think yeah, because Napoleon, which was a better game, uh, didn't get the respect. Right, and that that was that was really frustrating because it was like, well, they they finally got it right, but by that point, I think it was just Empire poisoned that well. Yeah, we'll talk about hopefully we talk about Shogun. If I talk about Shogun with you guys, um, we can get into a little bit of my thoughts on why uh, those games didn't work quite so well, and I think there's a little bit more to it than just you know fan uh, fan exhaustion. Um, um, yeah, so I mean, we're talking about sort of repetition. I don't know. If there's a lot, a lot more to be said about it, but but I think going back to the the if it, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. There is a lot to be said for that, and I, I, certainly I think you know one of the things that you know is almost guaranteed to send me over the edge is sort of the knee jerk question. You know, well, how does it innovate? Yeah. Yeah. That, that I mean that that is such that that is such and that's such an easy question to ask, and it's a really uninteresting one. You know, quite is it often. Interesting. Pardon? Why is it an uninteresting question? I understand why it's easy, but why is the why is asking where innovation is uninteresting? A lot of times, I feel like saying that it does not innovate is a faux criticism in place of something real. Okay. You know, innovate like true innovation is is rare, right? It's Never. it's asking quite a lot. Yeah. So to to look at any game, to look at any series or any game in an established genre, and ask, well, well, how does it innovate? You know, you're automatically you're you're setting the bar very very high. You know, you're 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 saying, well, how is it redefining what games like this do? How is it redefining what the series does? Mm. And you know, I I think it's just it's it's an unrealistic standard because I think most of most of what we you know, to to quote uh, Prof- Professor uh, Provost Zakharov of the uh, of the uh, University faction Alpha Centauri, he has that one great line, right? Where you know, there's there's two kinds of scientific discovery. You know, the great leap forward and the slow, you know, exp- steady expansion of knowledge. Mm-hmm. And while we acknowledge our debt to the latter, we yearn for the former. And I, and I think that's I mean to an extent that's 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 progress in any field right, right. And so to ask well well how does it innovate, I think it's kind of disrespectful for the sort of minor. It, it I think saying how does it innovate, disrespects refinement. What do you mean by innovation? I suppose I, mean, I tend to look at innovation on kind of rather small scale. That's because I'm I'm one of these mechanics nerds, who you know looks at age of mythology and sees innovation all over the place. Which she said, "Oh, it's just Age of Empire," but really, it's not. There's all these wonderful little things going on, and how the how you have all of these concentric circles of rock, paper, scissors that interplay with each other in beautiful and majestic ways. You can say that's a refinement, but it's actually an innovation of rock, paper, scissors by making it more complicated, but still completely intuitive by having rock, paper, scissors within certain types of units: archers, spearmen, swordsmen. But also having, you know, myth myth units and hero units and ordinary units, and these two interplaying in this beautiful cycle of design. Now you can say that's just refining, but I just the elegance of it strikes me as a great leap forward. Um, that of course wasn't followed on by really anybody, uh, because the weirdness of Asian mythology 
uh, I think people were overshadowed by just how spectacularly beautiful and artistic it was, instead of just the glorious mechanics going on under the hood. It's definitely true that they're they're kind of porous concepts. Um, you know, I might argue that that is refinement, but I, I think. So what, what I hear, which is the last big innovation then by your standard in strategy gaming? Hmm. You want to say if someone says, okay, what was the last thing that innovated by your Zakharov Great Leap Forward uh, model? Uh, what would it be? Starcraft, the first one. You know, I mean that's that's an interesting question, but I'm definitely going no. You know, I I, I would say like for the RTS genre, the uh, the last great innovation was probably Dawn of War One. Okay, which was um, where it started, where it, it finally started importing war game concepts to the RTS. Right, I I remember it, it struck me as frankly revolutionary and exciting to see units getting cover bonuses. Right. Um, to see units getting suppressed and start to fight ineffectively, where you start to like, you know, to that point, like all RTS units have been kind of automata. Mm-hmm. You know, they they marched up, they shot their weapon until they died. Right. But but here was a game where there was much more like there was there was ebb and flow. There was attack, retreat, um, you know, thrust and parry. It was very exciting, and it was neat to have to sort of consider the train and consider the effect of weapons on morale. Um, also, it, you know, it had those unit customizations, right? Like, what does a squad of infantry carry into battle? Yeah. Uh, so it allowed for some interesting matchups. To me, that was the that was the last great innovation, and Company of Heroes expanded on it. But I still kind of feel like Relic is iterating on it with Dawn of War 2. Right. Um, but to me, that to me for the RTS genre at least, that was probably the last thing that struck me as you know truly innovative. You can't have real innovation within a franchise, can you? Real innovation within a franchise, boy. Um, because I mean, you, yeah, I mean, I'm with you. I mean, relics uh, RTSs are, I think, only the state of the art right now, and partly because they had first what you say, the whole cover suppression system, and then they had the whole uh, territorial control thing they introduced, which you see in Company of Heroes and Dawn of War II. You seize certain points, and they give you bonuses. I think that was a great step forward in making uh, the RTS you know, more of a game and less of an elimination uh, type match. Um, Whereas we're holding ground instead of just eliminating the enemy, for example. Right. Uh, I think that was a great innovation. I think Relic uh, innovates quite regularly uh, in little in little ways, if you can innovate in little ways. But I mean, but within a franchise, like, um, do people really expect innovation within the Dawn of War games? Like, if you were to write a rev- have you seen reviews of Retribution saying where's the innovation? Yeah, I've been reading. I haven't been reading too many reviews. Of course, about Retribution. So, maybe write. Can be writing one. I don't think I will be, but I, uh, you know, I, I will probably read one just before the whenever we finally do do the show. But mm-hmm. I haven't been reading a lot of reviews of Retribution, honestly. Yeah, me neither. Um, I I like to explore games before I read about them generally, uh, especially if I know I'm if it was if I'm not sure I'm going to be playing it, then yeah, I'll read read a review. But but I mean I don't know like within innovation within a within a franchise. I mean Civilization did. Civilization did. Um, wouldn't you say that Warcraft innovated? Warcraft, I mean, eventually, like Warcraft Three was a yeah. rather significant departure. Yeah, it, it, it was. Warcraft Three was a big, big break. In fact, I would have liked to have seen some of that stuff uh, in Starcraft Two. Right, and I mean, I you know, I've I've always sort of, you know, you remember when Warcraft Three was originally pitched, right? It wasn't even going to be a traditional RTS at all. I think it was going to be much more like what the Dawn of War campaign eventually became. Um, where it was like a hero, a, a hero unit, and a couple of auxiliaries, 
going out and fighting. Right. And they eventually they backed away from that and struck a compromise between that idea and what they'd already accomplished in Warcraft 2. I think Warcraft 3 was a much more cautious design than they originally conceived. Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, the innovations were there. Right. So yeah, there's another example. I do get that you know, innovation becomes a fetish for reviewers. Uh, more so than for gamers, of course. Uh, but I do think, you know, it's one of the things critics have to do is ask, you know, where is the genre going, if it's moving forward at all. And you can say it's done by little refinements, and it is. Um, but, you know, little refinements still have taken the RTS forward, you know, not quite as far as, or as in many interesting ways. Uh, as you look at the, the Red, look at the Command and Conquer games, for instance. They were all pretty much refinement, 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 and got kind of boring because they have, hadn't really innovated since the first Command and Conquer. Right. Um, whereas things like, where the Relic games, you know, have I mean, the differences between Dawn of War 1 and Dawn of War 2 are quite stark. You throw a company heroes in there. Yeah, if I was to make one global criticism of, of Dawn of War 2, is it... No, no, it, it would be unfair to say, well, why isn't it more like Company of Heroes? They're different series, they have different audiences, and, I mean, it, you know, it's okay. Like, you want, you want variety in the RTS genre. Right. But, I, I, you know, going back to play Company of Heroes again these last few weeks, you know, I, I, I'm struck by how unique that design is. Yeah. And I, and I find myself thinking, you know, damn it, why, you know, why hasn't there been more of, more of this since Company of Heroes? Why is, why is Company of Heroes kind of alone in its own genre? It's a great game that a lot of people still play. I mean, I love it. I had uh, dinner, had lunch with an old college friend last week and met all of her kids. And her 13-year-old son's a huge Company of Heroes fan. So we talked about that for like half the lunch. His favorite things in Company of Heroes. Uh, so if you're listening, hello, Charlie. Uh, you're a smart kid. You know your games. Um, so, yeah, I don't know why Company of Heroes... Are they going somewhere next week? Because Company of Heroes Online is dead. Yeah, and I, I don't know. What, I don't really know what happened there. Um, I there, there's a part of me that suspects that Company of Heroes Online may have only existed as sort of a proof of concept to sort of set the gener- set the direction for a project upcoming. Yep. You know what I mean? Because it never se- it never seemed like they were making a completely different. Like Company of Heroes Online sounded pretty much. Like, that's what it literally was. Well, it's Company of Heroes, and it's online, and it's free to play. You know, but I don't think, I'm not sure it was an entirely new game, but I, I didn't play it. Uh, just, it, it sounded. That's, that's how it came across to me. Right. I, I suspect that that was, that was Relic testing the waters for something else they have in mind. Um, I hope they do something else with it. I still want to see the Eastern Front. Well, and, and that seems so obvious. Now, Relic has an announcement coming out. The spring or early summer, right? They, I, I'm pretty sure there's a there's a new game announcement coming. Yeah, and hopefully it will be uh, that. Homeworld. Oh, dude, don't don't start, don't do that to me. I know, I know, but but I mean that that would be better than the Eastern Front would be another Homeworld game. Yes, absolutely. Uh, but we all know which one is a more likely chance of happening. Right. Well, and I think you know if if we're going to. You know, one of the frustrations is, again, we pay a lot of respect to innovation, but it's amazing how many truly innovative games are sort of le- left to wither on the vine. Well, yeah, and also amazing how many of us old people calling for innovation say, oh, I'd love to have another XCOM or another... Well, yeah. Um, as if, you know, the ones we had uh, weren't any good anymore. 
um, which is kind of sad that we want to keep reliving all of these great things from our past. We're like Hollywood producers, you know, pillaging our 80s childhoods for movie ideas. Hang on. I mean, I think that I think that is what's going on. But again, like Hollywood producers... It, it it just seems to me like there there's a lot of a lot of current game publishers sort of pillaging um what I consider like the golden era of PC gaming to create their next big thing, right? They're they're looking for IPs that have been used for used for a while, something that has a built in constituency, but they really have no interest in continuing that game or picking up where that design left off. They no. they kind of want the name and you know, the they want they want the name and and maybe some aspect of the universe, but they don't actually want the game. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. I think you want the game. Yeah, I mean, uh, I don't know. I mean, uh, did I mean didn't a part of you feel like you've been gut punched when you when you re- when you learned XCOM was going to be an action game? <sighs> yeah, because I I've because you always hear rumors when you're in this business that peace that somebody is working on an XCOM game. I heard this rumor attached to at least three different developers through my journalist career. I wouldn't say which ones. Um, and it's always disappointing. Oh, an XCOM game. Oh, really? Oh, my God. Oh, I didn't know it was them. That's amazing. Oh, God. Yeah. Yes, then you take a look at it. It's like, yeah, of course you're a little bit gut punch. But I mean, I'm not saying I'm better than anyone else. I'm not saying I don't have the same flaws as everyone else. Uh, yeah, because you know I'm the same person who's going to be going out there. If, if you know, if you know uh, Rachel Bernstein decided she wanted to do Imperialism three, I pre-order that right now. Uh, but I th- uh, that strikes me as entirely reasonable. Um, I I totally understand wh- why you'd want that because there, there really there has not been a replacement for Imperialism, right? Right. Right. So and yeah, if, it's for if it's reviving something entirely unique, yeah, I can see that. Right, but if somebody just took. If somebody just took the imperialism name and slapped it on, you know, a Rock'em Sock'em RTS, basically, you know, with like the the various <laughs> colonial powers just like racing at each other with like you know automatic muskets, you know that, you know that that would be that would be a little depressing. That would be, that would be Age of Empires three. Ouch. Which I loved. Well, yeah, I mean, I you know I think again if it, I, I remember in your sort of um, eulogy for ensemble. You know, you had a, you had a lot of really nice things to say about Age of Empires three and the ways again that I don't know were they refinements were they innovations but the ways it sort of broke with series tradition. And there were also you know things they wanted to do that they couldn't, but that's what it's with all developers. They wanted formations, couldn't quite get them to work. Formations would be nice. Well, you know, they didn't add much. I guess they thought it was worth taking out. But it's funny a lot of the previews talked about formations, and they, so I guess they had something working at one time. But it, I guess, it didn't hold together. But they were, you know, thinking of getting because they had formation of Age of Empires two, but for some reason, it didn't quite work. Age of Empires three. I never got the full story on that. But, right. But I mean, do they still have the sort of auto formationing where? Because yeah. in Age of Mythology, it was like okay, melee units up front, ranged units yeah. in the back. Yeah, generally, it was sort of an auto formation type thing. It wasn't like Age of First of Age Empires. They'd all be clumped together in a whole mess, and then your catapult would kill all your own archers and. All that chaotic mess. Before we do shut down, I do want to uh, give our listeners, or the listeners in my area, a little note. Um, as I said, I have recently moved to Toronto in the last month, uh, part of many big changes in my life. And uh, this is probably the biggest one in quite some time. And I've returned to the city I love best. 
uh, it's a great opportunity for me to host a the first ever Canadian uh, meetup. Uh, once again, a meetup in Eastern Time. Sorry, all you great West Coast fans. So anyone who's in Southern Ontario, I do hope you can come out. Uh, I haven't quite picked the date yet. I haven't quite finalized, but it will be in late April. So it will either be on April 23rd or April the 30th. Um, if you post in the comments on this podcast post on Flash of Steel, uh, then I can try to get a bit of a head count going. Um, I haven't picked a location, as I've said, or a time in Washington mid-afternoon seemed to work very well. I'll try to find a local pub. There's one right in my neighborhood that I love. I love the service. I love the staff. I love the beer and the food. Uh, but whether they can hold more than a certain number is a question. I've already spoken to them about it. So April 23rd or April 30th, um, as many of you who can come out as you can, that would be awesome. Um, I have a lot of friends here in the area. Um, I've been seeing some of them, but I'd like to make some new friends. And please, uh, come on by. I'll try to get buttons before then. All right. And, um, you know, there, there's one bit of business I want to discuss, and that was uh, what should be the web home of Three Moves Ahead. Um, you know, I said early on when, you know, when I took over hosting duties that I wanted 3MA to have its own web address apart from Flash of Steel, uh, give it a little more space that's more tailored to a podcast, not have it jostling for a page position against, you know, uh, Troy, Troy's writing. Because my, my epic post count is just pushing things down. Definitely. But, I mean, you know, but before I, you know, move in, move in that direction, I definitely want to hear from listeners, you know, what would, what would you want from a 3MA website if we go ahead with that? Um, you know, what does, what would you be expecting a good 3MA site to accomplish? Um, you know, does the podcast need one? Uh, so I definitely want to hear some feedback on that. You know what what people want for for the future of Three MA's web you know website of things. So Troy, yes. Last comments here. What game from a bygone golden era would you resurrect, and why? And why aren't you just some dude living in the past who can't accept that things are pretty good right now? Things are pretty good right now. I'm not going to complain about today's strategy games. We have a wealth, we have a variety that we never had uh, when I was. Uh, getting into the genre. The things are just, I, I, I wish war games were more mainstream, more people played them so I could talk to more people about them, like way back uh, in the golden age, and my perceived golden age. Everybody has their own different golden age. Uh, we're in an excellent, excellent time for strategy games right now. Um, Thomas said it's a new golden age, and I'm not sure I'd go that far, but it is certainly, uh, things are really, really good. But yeah, I, I would revive Imperialism. I mean, it's not even close. It would be the number one franchise I would revive. I liked how it handled, it wants to be turn-based. I liked how it handled production cycles. I liked the slow burn where tensions would slowly, slowly, slowly ratch up and then explode instead of constant in-your-face action all the time. Um, I've Even though I like games that are over quickly now, like I've said, when I play a long game, I like having the tension not there at the very beginning. If it's going to be a long game, let me earn the tension. Let me earn the combat. And Imperialism did that perfectly. All right. Now, as we all know, I'm, I'm very young. Uh, so, so for me, I, I don't have too many, like, my, my distant strategy, Golden Age, just consists of a few key titles. But until recently, I definitely would have said... I, you know, I would I would give my right arm. Well, no, that's my mouse arm. But I give something. I definitely give something valuable for another 
real close combat game. And I know Matrix has made their own close combat games. I don't particularly care for the direction they went with that series. I kind of want my my classic bridge too far style close combat game. But you know, in the last year, I mean, I've I've gotten into the Men of War series, which I mean, as listeners know, I'm I'm now kind of addicted to. Octane uh, Panzer came out, uh, right. which is definitely in that tradition. But where where I still feel a bit of a lack, honestly, is um, a successor to a game like Panzer General, not Panzer General. I'm sorry, uh, Steel Panthers. Hmm. Uh, you know something that, you know, a good, um, a good turn ba- turn based, you know, squad level, hex based war game. Um, I would I would absolutely adore another Steel Panthers because that was, you know, talk about a game that was easy to learn and just miles deep. A series that was absolutely brilliant at sort of doing little vignettes at, at, at in visiting little known theaters of the war. That's what I really loved was, you know, you know, my God, did you, do you have any, did you have any idea what it was like for, you know, the, the Greeks fighting the Italian German coalition? No, but steel Panthers is the game to finally let you play that out. Yeah. Uh, so, so for me, that's, that's definitely one of those games that I would love to bring back. And, uh, you know, I mean, if, if I were to say like, there, there are still plenty of great war games out there. Obviously, you know, we, we, we try to cover them here. But Steel Panther is one of those games where it was, this, it was this wonderful balance between being really hardcore, really classic, and yet wonderfully accessible and also really visually thrilling. Not many yeah. games fit that bill anymore. Yeah, Steel Panthers is great. Oh, I man. Remember the sound some, effects? I used to play a lot of PBM. And oh my god! Yeah. Seeing the turns play back and wondering where what happened to your tanks. Oh, that's what happened to my tank. Yeah, yeah. I, I just remember the sound effects too. I'd be sitting there, you know, crank up the sound. That this wonderful ricochet sound effect that was just yes. terrifying. Um, so yeah, that's that's definitely the game from my past that that I would happily resurrect. Um, but perhaps listeners can add their own in the uh, comments for this podcast. As always, uh, thanks to Michael Hermes for producing this episode and making us sound like we had some semblance of an idea and plan for what the hell we would talk about tonight. It's such a lie. I know. We tried so hard. We actually had to tied for days to get this organized. Yeah. But uh, in the end, it's, it's just us and uh, Michael Hermes' production magic. Um, and thank you, as always, the listener, for... Uh, especially for this episode, uh, for putting up with our gabbing. Um, So thank you, and until next week, good night. Good night, everyone.